My name is Claire Kelly. I am the Assistant Director for Exhibitions and Collections Management here at the National Portrait Gallery, and we'll be discussing the time cover portrait of Oveta Kalpabi today. Since this month's theme is talking about time covers, I wanted to give you a little bit of a background about the time collection here at the National Portrait Gallery. Basically, in the mid-1970s, Time Magazine and the Portrait Gallery began discussions about the disposition of art in their uh, picture collection. And what resulted was a relationship with Time Magazine where the first gift came from them to the gallery in 1978 of over 900 cover portraits. We've had subsequent gifts from them since then, and the last being in 2002. Uh, we also have gifts that came into the collection from some other sources, but basically the collection today numbers about 2,000 pieces, a little bit over 2,000. Um, not all of the time cover portraits actually make it onto the cover of time. Um, for example, in World War II, when they were worried about fast-changing cover stories, light-breaking news, they wanted to have a store of portraits available to them. So they did have portraits kind of in stock that if something changed, topic changed, and they needed to select from, say, another military figure or another political figure, they were hoping that they would have something they could easily pull quickly. So some of the portraits that you do see in our time collection are un unpublished covers. The portrait of Aveda Kalpabi is by the artist Erman, er, I'm not gonna get this right, Ernest Hamlin Baker. We do have 83 of his portraits in the time cover collection. Um, of that, most of the works are portraits like this, and actually the two on either side of the Oveta Kalpabi are also portraits by Ernest Hamlin Baker. Some of the pieces we did acquire of his were actually preliminary sketches, which do give us a little bit of an insight into his artistic style. Ernest Hamlin Baker was very meticulous. He basically did not like to do life sittings, but actually preferred to work from photography. And so he would sit and really examine photographs of his subjects. He would first do a pencil sketch, a very detailed pencil sketch of the sitter. He then did a watercolor study, which basically selected the color scheme that he was going to do. And then his final portraits were in gouache, which is a thicker form of a water-based media. The process usually took him anywhere from 5 to 12 days, so for him to do a quick change cover was kind of rare. Um, his first cover appeared on the cover of Time in 1939. He collaborated shortly thereafter with the editor, the picture editor at Time magazine, to on a decision to actually incorporate into the portraits symbolism in the background. His first covers don't have any type of symbolism in the back of the portrait. So these here, I'll show you examples of the type of thing he would add to the back of his portraits. His realistic style and the symbolism became a standard that was used by Time magazine for several years. And Baker was one of probably three go-to artists that they really went to over and over again. For example, Baker had half of the covers were his in 1941. By the time he retired, Baker had created over 400 portraits for time, about 300 of which had actually made it to the cover of the magazine. A little bit of a background on our sitter, Oveta Kalpabi. She was from, Ky I'm going to say this wrong properly too, Kyleen, Texas. I'm not from Texas, so I don't know if that's the proper pronunciation. Um, but she was born in 1905. Her mother was a suffragette. Her father was a lawyer and statesman in the State House of Texas. In her teen years, she spent a lot of time with her father in Austin, did go to a lot of the legislative sessions and really paid attention to what was going on and actually 
skip school a lot to be able to see some of those um, legislative uh, happenings. By the time she was 20, she actually had become the parliamentarian for the state house, of uh, the legislative parliamentarian for the state house. She held a lot of positions actually with the state. She worked for the state banking commission and actually codified all of the banking laws for the state of Texas. She had been an assistant in the state attorney's office. She um, had worked on the committee for the Democratic Convention that was held in Texas. And um, actually in 1929, she decided to run for the state house, was defeated, and decided that probably political life was not really what she wanted to do. In the 30s, she actually geared herself more towards communications. She started working at the Houston Post and started in the circulation department, but quickly rose in the ranks through um, being a columnist to an assistant editor, to a research editor, to the executive vice president, all before the age of 35. It, about the same time, she married William Hobby, who was a former, or, or was a friend of her father's, and also was the former governor of Texas. So she had known him in her teens living in Austin. They reconnected actually at the post and they were married about a year after they reconnected. Her husband and she eventually bought the Houston Post and she was also the owner of a radio station in Houston and also then later on a TV station. She was very active in civics and community charities um, and she was also the mother of two. So by the time we hit World War II, she's a very busy woman. In 1941, she was actually called into Washington, and she was asked if she would head what was then the new Department of Women's Interest in the Bureau, the War Department's Bureau of Public Relations. And it was really geared towards helping women at home, mothers, sisters, uh, wives, to know what was going on with their soldiers in the field. In that role, she also was asked to testify before Congress about a bill that Edith Norse Rogers was presenting to Congress to create what was going to be known as the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps, WACS with two A's. Basically, um, she supported the, the cause, which was to try and get a group of recruits from women who would support but not be part of the Army. They would take on some of the roles that soldiers were doing so that they could release more soldiers for combat or combat-related duties. It would be an all-volunteer corps, and unfortunately, the WACs would not receive any Army benefits. The bill did pass in 1942, and Iveta Kalpavi was asked to be the first director of that organization. She then set the structure for the organization, and she helped determine what jobs, what positions in the current Army women could fill that would then release the men for combat duty. The initial recruitment, because they didn't think they were going to get a whole lot of recruits to volunteer, a whole lot of women to volunteer for it, they limited it to about 25,000. And within the first week, they had about 13,000 people enlist. So quickly, they went ahead and upped the recruit limit to the legislated 150,000 recruits. And they were doing pretty well for the first, probably first few months of that um, recruitment period. Because it was going so well, um, Congresswoman Rogers introduced a second bill to Congress in 1943, which basically wanted to convert the WACs 2As to WACs 1A so that they would be actually regular Army. And because of the initial recruitment success, they did indeed pass that bill. And so in 1943, 
in the summer in, of 1943, the WAX-2As became WAX-1A, and the um, Anna Vedekalpava was asked to retain the directorship and became the colonel of the WAX. Um, WAX-1A would receive full Bennett's of Army, the same thing that any soldier was getting um, as a as full service army. And it really was an experiment at the time because it was the first time that they had actually incorporated outside of a nursing corps any women into an actual military service in the US. This cover was um, from January 14th of 1944. The article was titled Hobby's Army. Um, a Vedical Pabi had recently been to England to visit the wax in the um, European Theater of Operations in England, mostly in Eisenhower's headquarters. There were over 3,000 women who were, at the time, overseas in um, military positions, and 1,000 of those were based at Eisenhower's, or around Eisenhower's headquarters in, in the European Theater of Operation. At the time, wax were um, filling over 240 jobs within the Army. Most typically, you would think of clerical as being one of the support positions that women would likely take. But they were also mechanics, electricians. They were control tower operators, opticians, chemists, you name it. They were filling a lot of those positions so that the men could be off in the battlefield. Many of them were also doing top secret intelligence work in terms of deciphering um, coded messages. The commanding officers in a lot of these theaters were really recognizing the support work. Mostly, it seemed overseas more than domestically, were really recognizing the support that the women were providing. And they had actually been requesting more recruits be sent. Unfortunately, despite all of the successes that I've mentioned, the article was quick to point out that the recruitment had dropped. Um, when they converted from wax with two A's to wax with one A, um, basically, they lost a lot of recruits because some of the women who were these volunteers felt that, especially domestically, I think, felt that their jobs were not being, or their ability to do the jobs was not actually being fully recognized. And so they felt, I could do better as a civilian than what I'm being offered here. And so they decided not to join up with the Army. So it took a while, about the time that this, that was about a year between when that happened and when this article came out, it took that long for them to get the recruitment back up from what they lost during the conversion. Um, Oveta pointed out to the author of the article, and I could never find out who, what the name of the author was, but um, she pointed out that the volunteers were not only in the regular army, but they were also in the waves, they were in the spars, they were in the Marine Corps reserves. And so from a standpoint of women in general volunteering for services, she felt that the number was not that low. The author pointed out that compared to recruits in Great Britain and Russia, our per capita number of women who had joined the forces was not quite as high. And he attributed that to the fact that young women in the US, and I quote, move, were not moved by any great sense of personal responsibility for helping fight this war. And as you can imagine, there were a lot of letters to the editor within the next few weeks that basically disputed that fact. And they were from both men and women. Um, who were really saying that the reason that they weren't getting as many recruits as they thought they should was more based in the attitude of the American public and men in particular in terms of releasing women to feel that they could and supporting them in the fact that they could 
be beneficial to the armed forces. So if we look at the portrait itself, and I'll ask you to go ahead and come on closer so you can actually see this. The portrait is showing her in a three-quarter profile. She's in her full dress uniform, and Baker has done detail actually down to her prematurely gray hair. At this point, she's not even 40, uh, 40 years old when this cover is done. So she had a lot of responsibilities on her shoulders. She does have a rather stoic expression, very serious, I think, which actually reflects the position that she was holding, the weight of the war on her shoulders and trying to get these recruits to help with the Army, as well as the fact that I think it's a very determined expression that really says that I'm trying to meet this challenge. In the background, the symbolism that Baker had incorporated here is the Greek goddess Pallas Athene, who is also known as Minerva. Pallas Athene became the insignia for the Women's Army Corps. Um, the selection of Pallas Athene is described in the heraldic section of the Quartermaster General's office, and they said, and I quote, the head of Pallas Athene, a Roman and Greek goddess associated with an impressive variety of womanly virtues. She was the goddess of handicrafts, wise in industries of peace and arts of war, also the goddess of storms and battles, who led through victory to peace and prosperity. So I think that's an actually very fitting that that insignia is what was part of the Women's Army Corps. The insignia was used on the lapel, and if you look closely, you can kind of see the feathered headdress just very uh, low there on the lapel, at the very bottom of her lapel, and it was always um, incorporated with the U.S. Uh, at the top of the lapel. And the other portion that was always part of the uniform was the seal of the United States on the cap and on the buttons, and that's basically the eagle with the stars and stripes breastplate. Now, Aveta Kalpabi was really known for having some wild hats, and um, she was part of the design for the uniform, and so a lot of the wax felt that she had actually had this hat designed specifically for her because she was pretty much the only person who could pull it off. And so it became known, it was nicknamed the hobby hat. That's part of the uniform. Uh, basically, of the 2,000 portraits that we have in the collection, they were gifts mostly of time. However, we did obtain some from private collections, either through donations or purchase. We also obtained some from the artists or their estates. And, the, and in the case of Oveta Kalpapi, we actually obtained it from her, the sitter. In some cases, the artist would return the portrait to the original sitter. And when it was discovered that this portrait was in her collection, our curator of the time, cover collection actually wrote to her and asked if she would consider leaving it to, you know, disposing, not disposing of it, its disposition would be the National Portrait Gallery, hopefully, it, um, when she was ready to um, uh, donate it somewhere. And so within a month, actually, of that letter being sent to her, the piece was in our possession. She had immediately said, yes, I think I have what you want. Here it is. And it became a gift to the National Portrait Gallery that year.